So uh, this is going to serve as the final uh, message in our series uh, that we started last night called Life with the Spirit. And I want to kind of take a different direction to this one um, because I want to do a little bit of teaching, if that's okay. Um, and I want to talk about the Holy Spirit in the context of the sanctuary in the Bible and in specificity in relationship to Christ. And so um, if I were to give this message a title, I would give it the title, I Want to See Jesus. I Want to See Jesus. Bow your heads with me. Uh, as we pray. Mighty God, everlasting Father, we are so grateful that you have counted us worthy, even though we are not worthy, to be recipients of your grace. Father, we need all the grace that heaven is willing to bestow, that we may live before you and be perfect. We ask that the Spirit of God, whom Jesus promised, that when he has come, he would guide us into all truth. That he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he would show us things to come. Guide us, Lord, as we study this all-important topic and continue in our final message. I want to see Jesus in an experience of life with the Spirit. We thank you so much for how you're going to answer this prayer in our hearts this evening. And we trust that we'll leave this place blessed and encouraged, loving Christ more than when we came. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin uh, with a statement. This is how the story goes. It says, soon after this, I had another dream. I seemed to be sitting in abject despair with my face in my hands reflecting like this. If Jesus were on earth, I would go to him, throw myself at his feet, and tell him all my sufferings. He would not turn away from me. He would have mercy upon me, and I would love and serve him always. Have you ever felt that way before? That going through a situation of great despair, of great sorrow, of great of great problems, and you said to yourself, I wish Jesus was upon the earth, and I could go to him and tell him all my sufferings. She had been in such a place of pain and of discouragement, she wished that she could go to Jesus' doorbell and know that Jesus was home, and ring the doorbell and know that Jesus will answer and say, Jesus, can I come in? I just want to tell you my sufferings. And Jesus would say, come in. And so you can imagine that as we all go through different struggles, as we all face different problems, we can resonate with this desire. Can you say amen? amen? That if I could go to Jesus and think about my parents getting divorced or the fact that me and my wife are not getting along the way that I hope we could get along, I could actually go to Jesus and tell him all my sufferings. And I know Jesus would have mercy upon me. And I know Jesus would receive me, and I know he wouldn't turn me away, and I would love and serve him always. But it goes on and says, just then, the door opened, and a person of beautiful form and countenance entered. He looked upon me pitifully and said, do you wish to see Jesus? Do you wish 
to see Jesus. He is here, and you can see him if you desire it. Take everything you possess and follow me. I heard this with unspeakable joy and gladly gathered up all my little possessions, every treasure trinket, and followed my guide. He led me to a steep and apparently fair stairway, frail stairway, excuse me. As I began to ascend the steps, he cautioned me to keep my eyes fixed upward, lest I should grow dizzy and fall, um, lest I should grow dizzy and fall. Many others who were climbing the steep ascent fell before gaining to the top. Finally, we reached the last step and stood before a door, and here my guide directed me to leave all the things that I had brought with me. I cheerfully laid them down. He then opened the door and bade me enter. In a moment, I stood before Jesus. There was no mistaking that beautiful countenance. That expression of benevolence and majesty could belong to no other. As his gaze rested upon me, I knew at once that he was acquainted with every circumstance of my life and my inner thoughts and feelings. I tried to shield myself from his gaze, feeling unable to endure his searching eyes. But he drew near with a smile and laying his hand upon my head said, fear not. The sound of his sweet voice thrilled my heart with a happiness it had never before experienced. I was too joyful to utter a word, but overcome with emotion, sank prostrate at his feet. While I was lying helpless there, scenes of beauty and glory passed before me, and I seemed to have reached the safety and peace of heaven. At length, my strength returned, and I arose. The loving eyes of Jesus were still upon me, and his smile filled my soul with gladness. His presence awoke in me a holy reverence and an inexpressible love. My guide now opened the door, and we both passed out. He bade me take up again all the things I had left without. This done, he handed me a green cord coiled up closely. This he directed me to place next to my heart. And when I wished to see Jesus, take it from my bosom and stretch it to the utmost. He cautioned me not to let it remain coiled for any length of time, lest it should become knotted and difficult to straighten. I placed the cord near my heart and joyfully descended the narrow stairs, praising the Lord and telling all whom I met where they could find Jesus. This dream gave me hope. The green cord represented faith to my mind and the beauty and simplicity of trusting in God began to dawn upon my soul. When I read this, not the first time, but the second time in my life, I was running a missionary training school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, about six blocks from Harvard University. And as I read this, I was really impressed with it, and I was going through a lot of difficulties in my life, and I said to myself, man, I wonder if this thing will work, right? So I started getting up early in the morning, and I would go down to the basement of the home where we were staying at the missionary residence. And I would go down, and I would pray, and I would pray, and I would pray, and I'd say, man, I'm going to stay here until you show me Jesus. 
This is what I said. And I did this for about six days. Nothing ever happened. And I recall that when I stopped doing this and I kind of gave up and was like, yeah, you know, there's not really nothing to this, I reread the statement again. And when I read it again, I realized something I did not pick up on at first. You remember that she started off by telling the dream by saying, in the dream she was in abject despair. She was discouraged. She was broken in life. And all she was thinking was, man, I wish Jesus were upon the earth. I would go to him and tell him my sufferings. Do you remember that? But do you also remember that when she got into the presence of Jesus, she didn't say anything. She said as soon as his eyes met her, she immediately knew that he was acquainted with every thought and feeling of her heart. In other words, we may think that if Jesus was upon the earth and we could go see him, we would go and tell Jesus all of our challenges. We would tell Jesus all of our dreams. We would tell Jesus all the things that we're afraid of. We would go to Jesus for counsel. We would go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, what, what do you think I should study in university? What do you think about this young lady or this young man that I'm considering for a relationship? What do you think about this struggle that I have with music? Sometimes I wonder, should I listen, should I not? Who wouldn't want to ask Jesus? But yet you find the fact that we are thinking something that is not actually going to take place. That if we were in the presence of Jesus, we would say nothing. Because immediately, as she, told, as she told us in the dream, I already knew that he was acquainted with every thought and feeling of my being. To such a degree that she said she tried to shield herself from his gaze, but she couldn't get away from his searching eyes. To recognize this reality bids us to the fact that this desire to see Jesus, to be in his presence, to want to be with him, to bring our cares, our sorrows, our burdens, our pains, our problems to Christ, we would recognize he already knows. Jesus knows. We're not going to Jesus to inform him. But what we do realize is that there's something healing about the presence of Jesus. There was something encouraging about the presence of Jesus. There was something that ministered to her heart and to her life, to her mind, that gave her new courage, that gave her fresh resolve by being in the presence of Jesus. But you see, our message tonight is not is about the fact that we don't have to despair. We don't have to be discouraged and say, but Jesus is in heaven. But Jesus is ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. How can we go to Jesus? How can I be in Jesus' presence? Because tonight's message is about the fact of how then can you and I find ourselves in the presence of Jesus when Jesus is there in heaven? How is this possible? And my answer is very simple. It is through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And I want to show you this from the Bible. Are you ready? All right, take your Bibles, and I want you to go to the book of Psalms, chapter 36. Psalm 36. Psalm 36, when you're there, if you could say amen. If you're not there, just say have mercy. 
Psalm 36. Are you there? Okay, if you don't have a Bible, just say pray for me. I'll bring it next time. Psalm 36, are we all there? All right, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says, through the words of David, he says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. With you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Now this is a kind of an enigmatic statement. But I want you to notice, how many different kinds of light do you see in this text? How many different kinds of light are here? I told you this is going to be teaching. How many? Two kinds. Anyone else want to second that motion? How many kinds of light do you see in this verse? It's okay. You can answer the preacher. How many kinds of light? Some people say one. Some people say two. Some people say one. Okay, how many people say one kind of light? Let me see your hands. It's all right. If you're going to be wrong, be strong. Don't have to be afraid. Okay, how many people say two kinds? Okay, now, the answer is two kinds. But this is why we'll explain why that is the case. So go back to the Bible with me. Psalm 36 and verse 9. So I want you to notice that David says, in your light, that means God's light, right? He says, I see something else. So if we want to be technical, there's actually three kinds of light in this verse. There is the light that helps you to see because what is the purpose of light? To see, right? To make manifest. Okay, keep your finger here. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians in the New Testament. If you're not taking notes, you should take notes so you don't get overwhelmed by the Bible texts. Ephesians chapter 5. Are you there? Okay, we're going to start in verse 13. Okay, the Bible says, But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is is light. Are you with me? Yes or no? Are you guys in Ephesians 5? Okay. So the Bible says, But all things that are exposed are made manifest. How? How are they exposed? By light. Why? Because whatever makes manifest is, is light. So whatever reveals something to you, whatever makes something, you're able to see it, you're able to grasp it, you're able to understand it, that is light. So when the Bible says, you and I as the church of Christ are the light of the world, we are supposed to make something manifest. If we are not revealing something, if we are not making something clearer to people, if we're not putting it in a way that they're now able to see it, we are not light. Are you following? We are not the light of the world because we decided to become a member of this local congregation. We are light if we are making something manifest. Are you still following me? So now in Psalm 36, go back there, because we just learned the purpose of light. And the purpose of light is what? To make something what? Manifest, to reveal it. That's a very simple way of saying it. The reason for light, if it's light, it helps you to see. That's the point. So now, in Psalm 36, the Bible says, 
in your light. So now God has a light, David says, the God that I'm worshiping. He says, his light helps me to see the light. <laughs> so he says, in your light, we see light. So on one hand, he says, I wouldn't be able to see light if it wasn't for God's light. Are you with me? I can't see the light for itself. I need God's light in order to see the light. Are you still tracking with me? Now, as a result, what we can understand from this verse is that the light that David is talking about secondarily is not helping him to see something. Are you with me? Because you don't need light to see light. Are you following? It's like if there's light, you see the light and everything else the light manifests. Are you following? So it's not like you have to turn on a light to turn on the light. Are you following? <laughs> you turned on the light, the light is on. <laughs> and now you can see. But how many of you guys have two light switches in your house? Turn on the light so that I can turn on the light. The only difference is if there are two different kinds of light. You're following. So I turn on the light so that I can go see in the room so I can turn on the lamp. Are you following that? Therefore, what I turned on in the beginning is not the same as the other light. If that's clear, let's say amen. So when David says, in your light, we see light. In Jesus' light, in God's light, he says, I am able to see something I was not able to see before. And what the thing that I'm able to see is light itself. Now this becomes significant because we can understand this concept through the sanctuary. Now I want you to notice something about the fact that in the sanctuary, in the Old Testament, there are how many different components to the sanctuary? Does anybody know? How many? Okay, you guys are whispering. Don't be ashamed. Okay, if you know, you can know. How many parts of the sanctuary are there? Three. That is correct. One, two, three. So the first section is called the? Outer court. Very good. And the second section is called the? Sanctuary or the holy place. And then the, other, the third one is? Most holy place or the holy of holies in the Hebrew. So now... In every section of the sanctuary, something gives off light. Are you following? In the outer court, what is the thing that is giving off light? The altar. Why is it giving off light? Because it's burning. Are you following this? Then when you go into the holy place, what is giving off light? The candlesticks. And when you go into the most holy place, what's giving off light? The glory of God. The presence of God is light. So in every section of the sanctuary, there must be light in order for you to see. Are you tracking this? So now you won't be able to see the sacrifice if there is no fire. So you need the light in order to see the sacrifice. If you go into the holy place, you won't be able to see the showbread or the altar of incense if there is no lamp. How can the priest do his work? Then you go to the most holy place, you won't see anything if you don't have the presence of God. Every single section. Now this will come back to us as a very important element. So I want to talk about very specifically the golden candlesticks. Now I want you to notice, let's learn some things about the golden candlesticks. Let's go to Numbers chapter 8 and verse 2. Numbers chapter 8. And verse 2. Our message is, I want to see Jesus. 
Numbers chapter 8 and verse 2. Are you there? Okay. The Bible says, when you arrange, I'm sorry, speak to Aaron and say to him, when you arrange the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light where? In front of the lampstand. Are you following this? So when the lamp is giving light, it can give light in multiple directions. Isn't that right? So if I take the lamp in my room and I turn it different directions, it's giving light in a specific place. Are you tracking this? So in Numbers chapter 8 and verse 2, we learn that the lamp stand is to give light where? Come on, encourage me. I know you read it in the text. Numbers 8-2 says, the, get the seven lampstands, where do they give light? In front of them. Right, before them, depending on your translation. Now, let's look at another one. Let's go to Exodus 25. Exodus 25. We find a similar point being made. Okay, so Exodus 25. We're going to look at verse 37. Exodus 25, verse 37. Are you there? Okay, the Bible says, You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light how? Over against it. That means over against it is that which is across, if you have a King James Version. In the New King James, they just tell you blatantly what it's trying to say, which is in front of the lampstand. It's not behind it. It's over against it, that which is across from this thing. So when we look at the golden lampstand, the golden lampstand is not to give light upon itself. Are you following? Where is this light supposed to shine? In front of it. Now, if you understand the organization of the sanctuary, what is in front of the lampstand? What is across from it? Some people are whispering. Yes, the table of showbread. Is across. So you have when the priest walks into the holy place on his left side is the seven burning lamps. Across from the lamps are is the table of showbread. Stacks of twelve. I mean stacks of six, six and six, with the utensils and everything. So as he walks in, he's able to see across here because the lamp is shining specifically for the purpose of illuminating the table of showbread. Because it's almost like when you're eating with someone, don't you have light? You do, right? And so this light is able to provide the fact that now the priest can see this bread. So now we just said that here you have this lamp is designed to give light in front of itself. This lamp is shining specifically on this object that is across from it, which is the table of showbread. So now let's build upon this and see what can this lamp be a symbol of in the word of God. Let's go to Revelation chapter 4. I just want to have a Bible study with you tonight to teach. Normally I don't go to a lot of verses, but I really felt the burden to teach, which is what I must, I actually enjoy a lot more. Revelation chapter 4. Are you there? Can you say amen? Okay, if you're not there, just say have mercy. So we know. Revelation chapter 4. Are you there? Okay, yeah. so now John is taken into heaven and he sees the throne room of God. As he's taken there to see the throne room of God, the Bible says he describes the person sitting on the throne. He describes the four elders in verse 4. And in verse 5, he says, and from the throne 
proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, and seven what? Lamps of fire were burning where? Before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Are you following? So now we understand that the number seven in a biblical context is the concept of completion, the concept of perfection. So now here we have the seven spirits that are burning before God, which is mentioned also in Revelation chapter 1, is also obviously an allusion to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. So now in this context, the Holy Spirit is being described as the lamps because Revelation is filled with sanctuary imagery. So here you have the throne room, and in the throne room, as John goes up in heaven, he's getting this thing in vision, he sees seven lamps. But he knows that the lamps are a symbol of the seven spirits. Are you following this so far? So now these seven spirits, these lampstands, on Revelation chapter 4 are associated with the Holy Spirit. But we don't just have that. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 4. Okay, Zechariah is in the Old Testament. It's the book right before Malachi. And in Zechariah chapter 4, we begin to understand another illusion in the Old Testament to an association with the Holy Spirit and the golden lampstands. Are you there? Can you say amen? Okay, if you're not there, just say have mercy so we can slow down. Okay. Some people just wanted to say it because it makes them smile. All right. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 2. Let's read. The Bible says, and he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a what? A lampstand of? Solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl, the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked to me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So now, what is he asking about? What is he asking about? Everything that he just saw, and what is included in what he just saw? What is included? Okay, the lampstands, what else? Olive trees, what else? The bowls, right. Now, let's keep reading together. Then the angel talked with me in verse 5 and answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. So now he's going into a whole explanation of how this applies. Now let's keep reading to prove that he's talking specifically about the seven lamps. Verse 11. Then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees? What are these two what? So what was the first section about? If it wasn't about the olive trees, what was it about? The seven lamps and the, the bowls. Are you following that? So now he's saying, when you talk about the seven lampstands, the message of the seven lamps is, it's not going to be done by might, it's not going to be done by power, but it's going to be done by my spirit. Are you with me? That's what the lamp was saying to Zerubbabel. Are you tracking that? So now we have another instance in the Bible where the seven lampstands are again associated 
with the work of the Holy Spirit. We saw it in Revelation 4, now we see it in Zechariah 4. He goes on to explain at the end of Zechariah, what are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. So he said, these are the two what? Anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. That phrase there, it means sons of fresh oil. Sons of fresh oil. So these two individuals, apparently Zechariah is made aware that there are two beings in heaven that stand beside God and continue to send down the oil to this lamp. They're the ones that constantly send fresh oil to make sure this thing is still burning. And then when he says, what are the lamps? Well, the lamps are the word of God to Zerubbabel that it's not going to be by might. It's not going to be by power, but by my spirit. So these individuals are the ones through whom God uses to send the Holy Spirit into the earth. It's a very interesting concept. But we don't have time to, this is not a Zechariah 4 Bible study. Now, in looking at this, we have two situations where the lamps are associated with the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the significance of this? Because we said in Psalm 36, in your light, I what? I see light. So now we've described the thing that helps us to see in the sanctuary. And the thing that helps us to see is the seven golden what? Lampstands. And we said that these can be a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's power to illuminate something. But what is it illuminating in the sanctuary, in the holy place? The table of showbread. So let's talk about this a little bit. So now when we talk about the table of showbread, I want you to look at um, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, for sake of time, I'm not going to go through all the verses. John in the 6th chapter, we're going to begin in verse 48. Gospel of John, 6th chapter. Are you there? You can say amen. Okay, so in John chapter 6, Jesus begins to talk a lot about bread. This is where he worked the miracle and he fed them with how many pieces of bread? Five loaves and two fishes. You guys know that story. So right after this miracle, Jesus goes into a dialogue with his disciples about the concept of true bread. So I want you to notice in John chapter 6, and I want to begin in... Yeah, we should probably get some context here. So in John chapter 6 and verse 26, the Bible says, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to what? Everlasting life. Now, the purpose of bread is to sustain the body. Are you following you eat the bread, it keeps perpetuating your life. But Jesus says, you should labor for the bread that when you eat of it, it leads to what? How much life? Everlasting. Everlasting life. So he says, you should labor for that food which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Wait, that's weird. Verse 28, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? 
This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the what? Manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who what? Comes down from heaven and gives his life to the? Are you following that? What is the bread of God? It's Jesus. Are you following? So the bread of God is Jesus. But he goes on, and I'll take you now to verse 48, because if you study all of this, it gets extremely amazing what Jesus is teaching here. John chapter 6, verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So now, the bread is literally a symbol of the flesh, the humanity of Jesus, that he says will be given, will be torn, will be battered, will be broken for the life of the world. Because when you want to eat bread in the Hebrew culture, and back in those days in the, in the Near East, you break off a piece of the bread. You don't just take the whole loaf and start eating the loaf. You take the bread and you break it. Does that sound familiar? In communion? So he took and he broke the bread and said, this is my body. So now here we have in the sanctuary now, the Bible is telling us right here in the sanctuary, Jesus says, I am the true bread. I am the living bread. Through my body is how you sustain eternal life. If you eat my flesh, but my flesh, he's not talking about his physical flesh. He's not talking about cannibalism. What he's talking about is the fact that his sacrifice on the cross. And this becomes extremely fascinating in the Bible because in all the articles in the sanctuary, the only thing when it is packed up and ready to travel in Numbers chapter 4 that is covered with a scarlet cloth, with a red cloth in the sanctuary is the showbread. Everything else is covered with the blue cloth except for the ashes from the altar. That's covered with the purple one. Now I want you to think about this for a second. Jesus says, the bread that I'm talking about is a symbol of my flesh which will be torn and broken for you. The sacrifice of Christ. And if you and I don't sit down and take time that Jesus says to take the cross and to digest this experience, to recognize in the humanity of Christ, in the sacrifice upon the cross, it says, when have you gone to Calvary to see the bread of life broken for you? When have you seen the fact that if you eat of this bread, you will never perish, but this will lead unto everlasting life? There are many people who are starving right here in this church because they have not had the bread of life. There are people who are starving right here in your community because they haven't had the living bread, the true bread that comes down from heaven, that when people eat of it, they shall never die. 
Because there's something about the crucifixion of Jesus, the brokenness of his body, the breaking of the bread of heaven that he tore for us and gave to us and said, take, eat, this is my body given for the world. And the Bible says you can't see the bread without the lamps. You can't see the bread without the lamps. What is the significance of this? Here's the significance. The first point is, because I have to rush to my conclusion in about five minutes. The first point is this. When Peter and John, were they at the cross, yes or no? John was there, right? Peter started to be there. <laughs> then Peter did what? He denied the Lord and then he went out and wept. So now here is John, the apostle, the disciple, is at the crucifixion. Who else was at the crucifixion? Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, right? Who else was at the crucifixion? Pilate. Who else was there? Centurion. Who else was there? His brothers. Who else was there? Two thieves. There's a lot of people at the cross, yes? How many of them were changed? Out of all those people, who was transformed? A thief on the cross. Who else? The what? The centurion. One other person. His name is Nicodemus. Who came for the body of, of Christ. Out of all those people, these were the only ones that were transformed by seeing the greatest event known to the history of the universe. Now, in understanding this concept, why is it that John saw the crucifixion, the other disciples knew about the crucifixion, they saw the broken body of Jesus, they seen this whole situation, and they are not changed? This is why it is completely absurd to make a movie about the crucifixion of Jesus. As if, if we put it visually on a screen, it will start impacting people through the passion of Christ. But this is nonsense. There were people who were physically there who were not changed by the event. Do you know how many people are crucified in Rome? All the time. There's nothing special about a cross or a crucifixion. The thing that makes it special is who is being crucified. And there is nothing about Jesus that you should desire him. There was no comeliness. There was nothing about Christ that you can look and say, he must be the son of God. The only way for you to see the bread for what it was, was through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. This is why Peter, James, and John, all these disciples who followed Christ for three and a half years, even at the resurrection, they were still scared. But there was something that happened after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down. And now Peter is no longer afraid. He's standing before the exact same priests that he was cowering from just a few days earlier. Couple months ago, Peter was beating feet. I don't know the man. I never met the man. This was Peter. 
But when the Holy Spirit comes down, now Peter is saying, listen, are we to obey God rather than men? You judge. And the Bible says his enemies looked at him and said, men, these men have been with Jesus when they perceived that they were unlearned men. They said, man, this guy has been with Jesus. But when they came before and said, Peter, have you been with Jesus? We know you've been with Jesus. Peter said, no, I haven't. I don't know the man. Are you seeing the contrast? And the difference in Peter's experience has nothing to do with, oh, now the cross is passed and done. Now I can put my chest out and I can be courageous now because Jesus has died and gone. No, no, that's not the issue. They're still killing Christians. They're still putting people in prison. They're still persecuting them. Why is it that Peter has courage now when he didn't have courage before? It's because something took place in his experience about the cross. His mind was illuminated by the power of the Holy Spirit. In his light, he could see light. He could now see the bread of life for what it was. This is why just telling the story of the cross affects no one. I remember when the Passion of Christ came out in this movie, everyone's watching this. Oh, man, I had no idea Jesus went through all this stuff. And I remember one person very close to me called me, was praying for this person to give their life to Christ. They called me crying. I can't believe what Jesus went through. I had no idea. Weeping on the phone. And I'm thinking, this is divine. I can't believe this person is telling me this. They're actually going to surrender and give their life to Christ. A few weeks later, back at the bar. Drinking, doing this, doing that, the same stuff. And I'm thinking, you were just weeping on the phone. Talking about you could not believe what Jesus had done for us. Because the problem is not the lack of visuals. The problem is the lack of the spirit. In his light, we see light. But this is what's interesting. Go to John chapter 8. To connect it all together. John chapter 8, in verse 12. Now Jesus says, He is the true bread, the living bread, and the bread that has come from heaven. Then he comes in John chapter 8, in verse 12, and he spoke to them again, saying, I am the what? The light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in, but have the light of life. So now here Jesus says, I'm not just the bread, but the bread is also the, the light. Are you following this? And it's not just the light. In John chapter 1, let's go there. John chapter 1, in verse 14, in the incarnation of Christ. The Bible says, and the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father full of? And truth. Who is this becoming flesh? This is Jesus. So here you have the bread, the light, the word are all the same thing. And the Bible says, in your light, we see light. This is why when Peter came to Christ and Christ asked him, in answer to Christ's question, who do you tell men that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, Peter, flesh and blood, 
did not reveal this unto you. But my Father in heaven. You didn't see that Jesus was the Christ because you reasoned it yourself. Because you tallied up all the messianic prophecies and added it up and deduced because you're just so bright in your mind. Jesus says, if you and I see Christ for who he really is, as the Christ, the Son of the living God, it is because the Holy Spirit has tapped your brain. It is because he has illuminated your mind, the reality behind the flesh of him who hung upon the cross. There is no other way to see Jesus. So before Jesus leaves, and he's talking to Peter, and we said, the lamps give light where? Where do they give light to? You guys are forgetting. Come on, the Sabbath is almost over. You can hang in there. Where does the light, where does it give light? In front of itself. So when Jesus comes and says in John 16 that when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will not testify of himself. He's not coming to talk about himself. That's not the purpose of the Holy Spirit. That's why we don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit was not sent to talk about itself. The Holy Spirit was sent to shed light upon who? Jesus. So when Jesus says, Peter, it's better for you that I go, otherwise the Comforter won't come. And why is it that the Comforter won't come? He says, because I have to go. So now, why am I telling you this about the Comforter when I'm leaving? He says, don't worry, I will be with you. I will abide with you, Peter, James, and John. I won't leave you orphans. Wait a minute, you won't leave us orphans, but you're leaving us. You're going to prepare a place for us, so how are we going to experience your presence? I have your answer right here. He says, you're going to experience it through the Holy Spirit. So the question comes down in multiple folds. When we look at this lesson, in your light, we see light. The Bible is first teaching us to accept our role as a royal priesthood. That's the first thing the Bible is teaching us. And to recognize if you and I are going to be priests of God, a priest cannot do his work without light. So for us, the Holy Spirit is an all-essential gift. Because guess what the priest has to do with the bread every Sabbath? Go to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus 24. I want to begin in verse 5. When you're there, say amen. He says, and you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every what? Ye, he shall set it in order before the Lord continually being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. In other words, the text is telling us 
that the role of the priest is to change the bread every Sabbath. The, the priest has to make sure there is fresh bread in the sanctuary every Sabbath. But the only way for the priest to do his work in changing, he needs light. And the only light that is in the holy place is the lamps. So in other words, how is the priest going to execute his task when he doesn't have the light? Is the same question of saying, how is it that you as a seven-day Adventist in Northampton are going to be able to do your work without the Holy Spirit? You will not be able to do it. I will not be able to do it. In order to see Christ, his sacrifice, who he really is, we must have the Holy Spirit. But not only this, because there's light in every apartment of the sanctuary. We will never be able to see the cross as it's supposed to be seen without the Holy Spirit. We will never be able to see the presence of God without the Holy Spirit. In His light, we see light. People wonder why a person can grow up in the church and hear the story of the cross all their life and be no changed. Because the problem is not the preacher. The problem is not the story. The problem is not the parable. It's not the lesson. It's not all, how did you tell the story? Did you, get, did you know this detail? That is not the issue. The issue is people can't see. People can't see. Because they don't have the Spirit. And so before Jesus left, that's all he talked about. You must have the Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit, you cannot see Jesus. We won't see him. And this lets us know that not only <laughs> is the Spirit, <laughs> this is where it gets interesting, not only is the Spirit illuminating Christ to the mind, we also said Jesus is the Word. So then you got people studying the Bible without the Spirit. But the Bible is letting us know that the only way to see light is in His light. And therefore, we need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to even understand the Word of God. To see the bread that has come down from heaven. But there's one last point that addresses our sermon in a very particular and personal way. Because we said, in his light, we see light. In his light is addressing the fact that this is his presence. It is the light of his presence. But we said, how can I go to Jesus? How can I tell him my sufferings? How can I find Christ in order to draw near to him when Jesus is in heaven? He says, no problem. I will send my spirit and my spirit will be my presence to your soul.
so that in his presence, in his light, you can what? You can see light. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, I believe in Christ for the same reason I believe in the sun. He says, not because I can see it, but because without it, I can't see anything else. When you and I understand this fundamental reality that I want to see Jesus, the desire for the presence of the Holy Spirit is the desire to have Christ's presence in your soul. When we have this experience, then we can understand how people wrote the hymns that they wrote. Those people understood when they were talking about, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. They're the ones that understood what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. I find one of these stories to be very compelling. In our, in our ministry, we're working on a project, so I can't, I can't go into all the details. But I want to tell one of these stories because it's one of my favorite ones. It's about the song, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. And by Louisa May, it's her name. And in this song, when I learned this, the story goes that Louisa May, she was married, she had a daughter. They went to the beach, and they were just having some time, mother, husband, and the child. And while they were there, they noticed that a man was drowning there in the water. And the dad got up on the beach and ran into the water to try to save the man's life. But unfortunately, Louisa May and her daughter watched her father and her husband drowned trying to save this young man. And there's nothing they could do about it. He got sucked under the water. They never saw him again. So as they are still suffering the grief of having lost their sole provider, her husband, her dad, they're trying to make ends meet. And after a few weeks, they realize they have no more food. They have no more money. So just as they ate their last morsel of food, they're sitting there thinking to themselves, what are we going to do? How are we going to survive? How are we going to even stay in this house? And they get a knock at the door. Then they went out to the door, and they realized someone had brought a pie. Then they closed the door. There was another knock at the door. Then someone had brought a basket of bread. Then they picked up the bread and came. Then they had another knock at the door. Then there was potatoes and food. And as the mother and the daughter were so overwhelmed, and they started enjoying this food and cutting the pie and enjoying this food, that the mother that night after she put her daughter to sleep, she sat down at her desk under her small lamp. And she began to write the words of this poem. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. But her prayer was, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, 
over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Have you found it sweet to trust in Jesus? Have you proved him over and over? And is it your prayer to say, give me grace to trust him more? This is what happens when we take the prayer that Ellen White brings and says, I want to see Jesus. And the guide came out and said, if you want to see Jesus, he is here. He is here. And someone's going to walk out of this sanctuary and be blessed with his sweet, sweet presence. And someone else is going to walk out of here, God forbid, with the same burdens they came. Through the person of his spirit, he is here. And we can go to him. And we can tell him all our sufferings. We don't have to go over the highest mountain. We don't have to search the deepest sea. We don't have to descend into the darkest valleys. We can kneel down in this sanctuary right now and ask for his presence through his spirit. And when we do it, we will find that it is sweet to trust in Jesus. We will find that we will be able to prove him over and over. And our constant prayer will be, give me grace to trust you more than I trusted you yesterday. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Is there anyone in this room that wants to join me up front at this altar, on the very closing of the Sabbath, and say, Lord, I need your presence. I need the sweet, sweet spirit of Jesus. And you want to tell Jesus through his spirit what we sang tonight, you are welcome. You are welcome into my heart, into my life. To pray for the Spirit of Christ. Is there anyone that has the courage to say, I'm going to get up out of my seat. I'm going to come to this altar. And I'm going to say, Lord, I need your presence in my life through your Holy Spirit. I need your presence in my life through your Holy Spirit. And I want to come this night and I want to be able to tell my neighbors, I want to be able to tell my friends, it is sweet to trust in Jesus. 
I want to be able to tell my neighbors what a friend we have. All my sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege I have that I can go to Jesus. And say, I want to be able to tell my friends, my family, my brothers, my sisters, tis so sweet. I want to see Jesus. Becomes my prayer every day. Our prayer every day is, I want to see Jesus. And I want to find that it's sweet to trust in him. And every day I want to prove him over and over. And every day I'm going to pray, Lord, give me grace to trust you more. I can promise you, my brother, my sister, Jesus will not fail you. Jesus will not let you down. You're going to find what every martyr has found. You're going to find what Peter and Paul found. You're going to find what women who gave their lives for the truth found. You're going to find what Ellen White found. You're going to find what James White found. What Martin Luther, John Wesley, Jan Hus. You're going to find what they found, that it is sweet to trust in Jesus. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful that on this night we don't have to travel to the depths of the sea. We don't have to climb the highest mountain. Lord, we don't have to ascend into the darkest valleys. Lord, we don't have to tread the dusty roads, nor do we have to go into the deep forest. But right here, right now, in this sanctuary, we can come and we can see Jesus. That your spirit can be his presence in our lives. Lord, we pray that our daily prayer would become, I want to see Jesus. Our daily prayer would be that we'd be able to rise from our knees day after day and go to our friends, to our loved ones, and say, it's so sweet to trust in Jesus. I've proved him over and over, and my prayer is just for more grace to trust him more. Father, it is our prayer that we would leave this place with the healing presence of your spirit, that we would receive him and that heaven would know that you, spirit of God, you are welcome into our house. You are welcome into our hearts. You are welcome into our marriages. You are welcome into our lives. Father, give us this experience so that we can live the rest of our lives with the Spirit, always able to go to Jesus. This is our prayer. And we offer this prayer from our hearts in Christ's name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.